0: to know me very well, one of the things you'll realize is I'm I'm not really much of a movie buff. Um, I probably go to less than one movie a year in the theater, uh, but my wife and I do uh, occasionally rent movies to watch from the library or from Redbox. Although I don't watch that many movies these days, uh, one of the things I do know about movies is that writers of movies put a lot of emphasis typically on the last few lines of the movie. And one of the things you typically see is that the last few lines, whatever type of movie it is, in some way or another, offer some sort of summary to the movie as a whole. Let me give you a few examples. First one comes from 1973, and here's the way the movie ends. Wilbur never forgot Charlotte. Although he loved her children and grandchildren dearly, none of the new spiders quite took her place in his heart. She was in a class by herself. It is not often that someone comes along who is a true friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both. Those are the last lines of the movie. Anyone want to guess what movie that's from? Charlotte. Charlotte's Web. All right, good job. Okay, next movie from 1985. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Back, Back to the Future, yep. Move ahead a couple years. This is actually a movie that I have not seen, but I know it's a very popular movie. Grandpa, maybe you could come over and read it to me tomorrow, as you wish. I can see many of you have (laughs) seen that movie. Okay, last one, 1995. In the year of our Lord, 1314, patriots of Scotland, starving and outnumbered, charged the fields of Bannockburn. They fought like warrior poets, They fought like Scotsmen and won their freedom. Braveheart. Yep. So you see here that that these are just lines from the closing of a movie that offer in some way a summary of everything that has come before. Well, the Bible in many ways is very similar. Today we're going to look in the very last chapter of the last book of the Bible and we're going to see a bit of a summary statement from Jesus. It really in many ways sums up the entirety of of the Bible. So I invite you to turn to your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22, Revelation 22. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. If you have no idea where Revelation is, just turn to the end and you'll find it. Um, but we're in Revelation 22 today, bringing a conclusion to the I Am series. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this series. Um, I was familiar with these I Am statements of Jesus beforehand, but spending nine weeks really digging into what Jesus had to say about himself, and and seeing how Jesus' statements about himself relate to our lives today really has been refreshing for me, and I pray it has for you as well. But today we're in Revelation 22, looking at a statement from Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which in many ways sums up the whole storyline of Scripture. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dig in. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us refreshment and encouragement from looking at the words that you spoke 2,000 years ago and seeing how they're still relevant to our lives today. And now as we bring a conclusion to the series, as we look at some of the last words that we have recorded in our scriptures, we pray that you will bring your word to life once more and show us what it means to us today for you to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. We pray these things in your glorious name. Amen. We're actually just going to look at two verses of this passage today. The whole passage is very rich, but we're going to zoom in. I'm going to read two verses. We're actually going to zoom in just on one. We're going to read Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13. These are the words of Jesus. And he says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, that was so brief. Let me read verse 13 once more. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is our final I Am statement that we're looking at in this series. And from this statement, I want to draw three conclusions about the nature of who Jesus is and then apply that to our lives. The first conclusion from Jesus being the Alpha and the Omega is this. That Jesus was and is God. He was God then when he spoke this and he is God now and he will forever be God. This is one of the themes we've been talking about through the course of the series. Every time you hear that statement, I am, coming out of Jesus' mouth, it's a very loaded phrase. It's not just a statement of uh, something that he does. It's not just a basic statement of identity. It's a statement of deity. And it goes back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was walking through a desert, and all of a sudden he comes along this bush that's burning, but for some reason or another, it doesn't get burned up. And God speaks to him out of that bush and says, Moses, I want you to go lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt and lead them into the promised land. And Moses is quite timid, and he says, God, I'm not sure if I'm the one who should do this. Well, okay, if I'm going to do it, who should I say sent me? And God, speaking through that burning bush, says, tell them that I am sent you. I am who I am. And this name, I am who I am, which is also known as Yahweh, became the most precious name for many centuries after that in the nation of Israel. And then Jesus came on the scene about 2,000 years ago and started using that name, I am, in reference to himself. And so as we've been talking about throughout the series, whenever you hear an I am statement from Jesus, it's a statement to deity that he is God, the one and only But here in this passage, when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, beginning and the end, there's even more to it than that that points to Jesus' deity. What comes after the I am also points to the fact that Jesus is God when he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, and so on. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. One is that this is not the only place in Scripture that you see words like this about being the Alpha and the Omega. For instance, if you go back to the first chapter of Revelation, you see, God himself referred to himself in chapter 1, verse 8, as Alpha and Omega. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was or who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is God himself claiming to be the Alpha and the Omega. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, you have God speaking again. He says, it is done, referring to at that point when he says those words, human history as we know it. Will be done, and the new age will begin. But he says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this actually uh, goes back to passages out of the Old Testament. Multiple places in Isaiah we see God referring to how He is beginning and the end, the first and the last. One place is Isaiah chapter, chapter 44, verse 6. God says, This is what the Lord says Israel's King and Redeemer, the, the Lord Almighty. That's the name Yahweh. I am that I am right there when you see the Lord. He said, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. So we see there's Old Testament precedence here that multiple times in Scripture, God, the one and only, is using the title Alpha and the Omega, first and last, beginning and end, to refer to himself. And then Jesus comes on the scene here in Revelation 22 and uses that same title in reference to himself. One of the other things that we see here in this passage is, uh, is the content of what Jesus says. It also points to Jesus' deity. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. then what he says next is, is pretty much the same thing, just different words. I'm the first and the last, I'm the beginning and the end. You, you may be familiar with this, but Alpha and the Omega are the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Kind of like saying, I am the A, and I am the Z. And when you say that you're the first and last, the beginning and the end, in the context that Jesus is speaking, there can only be one beginning, and there can only be one who's at the end. There can only be one who's first and one who's last, and that's God himself. And so when Jesus says, I'm that one, either he's displacing God and saying, well, God's no longer the one I am now, or he's saying that I am that God. And that's what he's saying here. That Jesus was and is God. Now we're going to keep walking through this passage to see more implications of what it means that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, but I want to take a little time out from that and just talk about the implications of if Jesus is God. There are many people in today's culture they really don't want to think of Jesus as God. Instead, they want to think of Jesus as being a good prophet, maybe a good moral teacher, a good religious leader, maybe one of the best but they stop short of allowing us to say that Jesus truly is God. And in my mind, when people claim that, I hear that all the time, but when people claim that Jesus is merely a good teacher or merely a religious leader, I have to assume that they have not fully read what Jesus said and did in his earthly ministry. Because if they did, they would recognize that Jesus was saying and doing things the, a decent, good human being or a good human teacher would never say or do. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, I think sums it up really, really well. I'm going to read a portion of, of what he says. He says, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and, and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall on his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. (laughs) I like how he used the words. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense saying he's merely a human teacher. Think about, for instance, I mean, I'm I'm Brandon Lemons. That's who I am. Imagine I stand up here and start claiming those I am statements for myself and say, I am. Brandon, I'm the bread of life. If you're hungry for anything, if you're lacking any satisfaction in life, come to me and I will fill that hunger and that thirst that you have. I'm the light of the world. If you don't know where you're going, come follow me. I'll lead you in the right way. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the resurrection and the life. If you're afraid of what's going to happen after death, you know, just come to me, believe in me. And then you don't have to fear what's going to happen after the grave. Or or how about this? You know Abraham? The guy back in the Old Testament? I was alive before he was. If I were claiming those things and were serious about them, I think you guys would have a few problems with that, wouldn't you? I mean, you, you can imagine then why the Jewish people in Jesus' time had such problems with the things Jesus was saying. When Jesus claimed that before Abraham was born, I am, they picked up stones to try to stone him for blasphemy because they understood that he was claiming to be God. And so when we hear these statements that Jesus is saying, we need to understand that he's not merely a great human teacher. A great human teacher would never say the things that Jesus said. If I said those things, or if you hear another person out on the street saying those things, if I said them, you'd probably, um, at the very least, want me to get some psychiatric help. But if I kept insisting on them, at the very least, you'd probably, you'd probably throw me out of the church here. Who knows what else? Because a normal human being does not say the things that Jesus said. And so, so if people are out there claiming that Jesus was just a good human teacher, I want to encourage you to to sensitively yet confidently point them even to the I am statements. Point them to the things that Jesus said and the things that he did. Because to say that Jesus is merely a great human teacher, as C.S. Lewis says, is just patronizing nonsense when you really come to grips with the things that Jesus said and did. Because Jesus was and is God. I want to dig in a little bit more to what Jesus is saying when he's the Alpha and the Omega. One of the things is that Jesus is first and last in chronology, in the the passing of time. For instance, in Colossians 1.17, Paul writes that Jesus is before all things. That before anything else existed in this universe, Jesus was. If you have a Bible, flip Ahead, or flip back in the Bible to Genesis chapter 1. We're reading out, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, out of the last chapter. Flip back to the first chapter, Genesis 1, that begins with, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, are you in Genesis 1? Okay, flip back another page. For many of us, it's probably a blank page, or like mine, it says it's the Old Testament. Jesus was back there as well. Back before there was an in the beginning. Jesus was there. One of the other places we see that is in Psalm 90. It's talking about God, but remember, if Jesus is God, this is true of him. Before the mountains were born, or, or you brought, the, brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. Imagine with me, you have this line. It starts right here, and it goes forever in that direction, and forever in that direction. Now on that line, I want, you to, I want you to imagine the farthest point that you can possibly imagine. Maybe out from the edge of the solar system, uh, maybe out in the Andromeda galaxy. Imagine the farthest point that your human mind can imagine. Well, Jesus, in terms of how long he's been alive in the past and in the future, he's beyond that point. Our human minds can't get wrapped around the fact that Jesus has been alive forever and he will be. But he is. He is the first And the last in chronology. He is also the first and the last in supremacy. One of the things when you see extremes like this, first and last, is that it means that that he is basically the end-all, be-all. And that includes everything in between as well. Think about if you're looking for something in your house and you say, you know, I've searched high and low and I can't find it anywhere. When you say I've searched high and low, that doesn't simply mean that you went to the top of the house up in the attic and you searched up there, then you searched down in your basement and that's it. No, it means that you've searched everywhere, the entire house, from top to bottom, and you can't find whatever you're looking for. And it's the same thing with being the first and last. When you mention extremes like that, beginning, end, first, last, top, bottom, it means that it includes everything in between. If Jesus has been around forever, And if if he is the Lord of all these things, that means that he is sovereign over everything that's taking place now. He is supreme. Think about alpha. Think about if you have a pack of coyotes or or wolves, you have the alpha dog in there who's in, in charge of it all, leading it all. Jesus is the ultimate alpha dog. You think of Omega, the ending. You think of Harry Truman back when he said the buck stops here. Jesus is that one. The buck stops with him. He is the one who is ultimately in control. He is first and last in supremacy. And really, because he is first and last in supremacy, and because he has been around forever, and everything else that exists, exists because he brought into existence, he has no final competitors. He, he alone is God. And it may seem like things are, things are broken in this world right now, but in the end, he is going to set things straight and no one who opposes God here on this earth and no, no demons, uh, no, no Satan are ultimately competing with him because he is supreme over it all. So now we have a question of what does this mean in our lives here today? How do we make Jesus the Alpha and the Omega in our lives? As I was reflecting on this and reflecting on the other uses of Alpha and Omega first, last, beginning, end throughout Scripture there are two phrases that came to mind. The phrases are these, exclusive worship and complete trust. Back in that passage out of Isaiah chapter 44, where it says, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. The reason that is being said right there, that I am the first and the last, is to show that there is only one God, and he is calling Israel to worship him Exclusively. So, exclusive worship and also complete trust. When you see in the book of Revelation, God talking about on the Alpha and the Omega on the beginning and end, He's speaking into a context of of Christians who are persecuted, Christians who are suffering, Christians who aren't sure what's going to happen to the world around them. And He is calling them to trust Him because He is sovereign and He is supreme. And so, that we have those phrases of exclusive worship and complete trust. And these come out of the fact that that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. So how do we get Jesus being the Alpha and the Omega into our lives? Well, one thing is in our lives as a whole, our entire life, he needs to be the Alpha and the Omega. In terms of complete trust, I think one of the places we look at this is in terms of how do we earn favor in God's eyes? How do we attain salvation, life after death? Well, it doesn't come through the things that we do it comes through what Jesus has already, been done, already done. He's called the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's done it all. All we have to do is, do is to trust in him. As far as the exclusive worship in terms of our whole life, we need to ask, what are we worshiping? And we may think, well, I'm not bowing down to any idols or anything like that. But what we are worshiping is whatever we are devoting our lives to following, whatever captures our heart the most, whatever... Um, whatever we 're daydreaming about, whatever we invest our lives in most fully and enthusiastically is the thing that we are worshiping. I was reading a book recently that talked about how, back in 2009, the world's largest worship venue was built just out of Dallas, outside of Dallas. Uh, it talked about how this worship venue had about 30,000 parking spaces. At full capacity, you can see about 110,000 people. It has this massive HD TV screen that's 160 feet by 72 feet. Just a, a massive, wor- uh, massive, massive worship venue where people come to cheer, to sing, to clap, to, to cry, to, to join together around a common cause. And I, as I was reading this book, I was very intrigued. I was thinking, I don't know of any church that big. Well, it's not a church. It's Cowboy Stadium where the Dallas Cowboys play. It's a worship venue. I mean, you can't tell me that there aren't millions of people in this country who get more excited about sports than they do about God. That's worship. If, if our hearts are set on, on earning wealth so that we can be comfortable and be happy through the things that money can buy, that's worship. If our hearts are set on on climbing the corporate ladder and and gaining the respect and the approval of others or gaining popularity in school through athletics or through the way that we look or the way that we act, if we value those things more than God, that is worship. And so we need to look at our whole life and realize that that God alone needs our exclusive worship. Now, it's easy to give lip service to that stuff, but let me give a few more practical things um, that can help us to apply this. We want God to be our Alpha and Omega in our whole lives. We need him to be our Alpha and Omega in our daily lives as well. Let me give you a practical example of how this is lived out in my life. Um, For years, I've had a practice of in the morning, I read scripture and spend some time in prayer and write in my prayer journal. And that's a very, very helpful and important practice for me to grow in my walk with God. But a few months ago, I realized that, you know, I don't feel as close to God as I should be or as I have been in the past. Um, Just busyness of parenthood, busyness of ministry, busyness of life. um, It's just not helping anything. And so then I I started a new practice at that point, kind of thinking back to how I was really growing a lot in college. And I said, I'm not just going to spend time in scripture and prayer in the morning. I'm also going to right before I go to bed at night. Um, Shelly and I had always prayed before we went to sleep. But now I was actually writing in my prayer journal, just processing through the things of the day, praying through things, thanking God for things, and then reading a psalm each night as well. And it's amazing how bookending my day, the first thing I do and the last thing I do before, after I get up and before I go to sleep, spending devoted time with God has been very helpful. And it's also helped me throughout the course of the day, remember, to, to consciously trust in Christ and worship Him exclusively through the course of the day as well. But even on a moment-by-moment basis, Jesus wants to be the Alpha and Omega in our moment-by-moment experiences as well, where everything we're doing, we're asking Jesus, what do you want to do through me in this instance? What do you want me to learn? How can I grow in exclusively worshiping you in this moment, in this conversation, in this task at work, as I'm, as I'm mowing the yard? How can I worship you and trust you more? And so by consciously asking that, those questions, Jesus can be the alpha and the omega of our moment and then of our entire day and then of our entire lives. But if we don't drill down and focus on each day and each moment, odds are good it's just going to be lip service if we want Jesus to be the alpha and the omega of our lives. So I said earlier that that this idea of Jesus being the alpha and the omega is kind of like the, the summary of the entire scripture. Just how the closing sentences of a movie are the summary. So is this kind of the summary and the idea of exclusively worshiping God and trusting Him completely, I would say, are two of the main ideas in all of Scripture: that if we can do those things, we'll be well on our way to Jesus being our Alpha and Omega here in the 21st century. And I pray that that would be true of us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are God who's worthy of worship. And we thank you that we can trust you. And God, we look at things in our lives, look at things around this world, and it's such a good reminder that you are the Alpha and the Omega, that you hold all things in your hands. God, we think about the elections coming up this week and think about how, um, how the future of our country hangs in the balance, how there's uncertainty there, and, and whoever is elected, there's still uncertainties there. But we look to you, Lord, as the ultimate king as the one, the only one who can give true hope. Because the Savior is not found in the White House. The Savior is you. But we pray that we will be faithful in this election process and that whoever is elected will have the character and the wisdom to lead this country well. And God, we also think of this situation in New York and other parts of the East Coast that are suffering from uh, the effects of this hurricane. We pray that you will turn people to yourself as the Alpha and the Omega as a result of that storm, and that you will use your people there to draw others to yourself. And for us, Lord, we pray that you will help us to more and more worship you and trust you with our whole lives, with each day, and with each moment. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.